there are so many new people who are becoming interested in all these different topics um, regarding Nephilim, of course, you know, the whole Genesis 6 thing, transhumanism, all this stuff. But, but our concern is that people are, you have all these people who understand, the, who are interested, fascinated by these topics, but, 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 but don't have any sort of, I'm going to use this term, theological footing. Uh, and our, our wayward in, in, in regard to their theological perspective. I'll tell you what, I know what the gospel of Christ is. And I know why I believe in the gospel. And you can strip away Nephilim from me. You can take Nephilim off the table. You can take all these, all these interesting topics off the table. All these things that sort of draw people into this space and just leave me with the gospel of Christ and I'd be perfectly content. And my concern is not for you guys by any means. I don't know why I'm saying this, but it's not addressed to you. Maybe somebody out there listening to this needs to hear this. But some people, I feel like if you were to remove all of the, all of the, the fascinating things, take them out of the equation, that if and all they're left with is the gospel, that they would walk away. A, because they don't understand the gospel and B, because they haven't yet truly appreciated it. The Son of God did not become an angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for men. So yes, we are exceptional in that sense. But we are not this, the, the focal point of the universe. We are not the center of the story. And some Christians tend to recoil when I say that. No, that's not the correct biblical perspective. The, the correct biblical perspective, which Paul articulated there in Ephesians, is that Christ is the center of all things. He's at the hub. He, it's him. He's at the hub of that wheel. It's his story. It's his universe. It was created by him and through him and for him. And in him all things consist... He's the center point. He's the focal point, not us. Not us. Not us. Not us. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed we wanted to craft a bold clean and smooth coffee so we did and we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now from the farm to your coffee cup there's nothing like a good well-crafted and bold cup of coffee no matter what time of the day it's there to pick you up motivate you and relax you we hope you enjoy our coffee be bold be humble be kevlar And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. And for listeners of the Dig Bible Podcast, use the code, all caps, DIG20, whenever you're checking out to get a 20% off discount. Enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Tom Dunn from Through the Black, and you are listening to the Dig Bible Podcast.
we should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. Its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to, to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to the show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. As you guys always say in the show, you, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God would be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't isn't this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. The Nephilology round table. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals? Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Bible Podcast. What's going on, guys? You took my... You took my I threw you a curveball that time, didn't I? You did. I'm we're sorry. Back. Go, we're back. We're back. <laughs> well, it's just good to see you guys. I'm excited to <clears throat> excited to dive in today because I think we're gonna learn a little more than uh, than just your average show. Oh yeah, this is a gonna be a really fun episode. Been looking forward to this one, but uh, I think we should just cut the small talk, guys. You wanna open up in prayer? Sure do. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us. We pray that uh, t- tonight's episode goes good. And that uh, the people that need to hear this message hear it. It's received well. And we pray for discernment of the word and the message today. And we just uh, we thank you for the guest uh, and taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down and speak with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we got uh, modern-day explorer, author, and researcher. You've most likely seen him from Ancient Aliens in his documentary series, True Legends, with Steve Quayle. His recent book is Birthright. Today we have the privilege of sitting down with Timothy Alberino. Timothy, how you doing today? Doing well, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. This of course. This be a very enlightening conversation. I think so. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. You are a wealth of knowledge. Um, but just with the stuff I've watched from you, uh, the stuff I've listened from you, I'm, I'm really excited because I think it's a topic, uh, especially with your book and everything you dive into. It's a topic that is really, really important right now um, that 
that we're kind of letting these things, uh, we're kind of pushing them, you know, anything in the church, a lot of times we find that we find a uh, supernatural or scary. We, we like to push kind of out of the view and just kind of pretend it doesn't exist, but things are happening. We're seeing things happen all around us right now. And it's really important to, as we said before, right? The, the book of the art of war, right? Know thine enemy. And that's the most important thing right now. So I think, uh, the, the information that, that you'll be able to give us today is going to be pretty enlightening for a lot of people. Well, you're really setting the bar high there. <laughs> nah. But no, uh, I guess, uh, you know, for the, the viewers that's not familiar with, you know, with you and your work, kind of give us a, a genesis of, you know, who Timothy Alberino is and a little bit of your background and a little bit of your story. Well, uh, I'm an author, researcher, explorer, filmmaker. I've been in in this field, so to speak, for about 10 years now. Um, previous to that, I spent a decade in Peru. Uh, and I guess that's, uh, that's, that's the, the very, very short version. Yeah. And, uh, I heard on another podcast that, uh, you know, you, you grew up in the church and just one day you yeah. decided just, to just take off to the jungles of South America. Yes, I did. I, my dad was a pastor of a non-denominational church in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, so I grew up in, the, in a church environment, um, a good, uh, a healthy church environment. And when I was 18 years old, I dropped slash got kicked out of high school and, and went to Peru, came back for a short period of time. And then I decided uh, to move, to move there indefinitely. And to move to South America, really. And by the time I made that definitive move, I was 19 years old. So, um, and then I stayed in Peru for some, for about a decade. I came back briefly to this, the United States and got married to, to uh, actually she was, uh, my wife Jasmine was uh, part of my dad's church for longer than we were actually there. They were one of the original families, and um, and so then uh, we went back to Peru together and lived in Peru for for a period of time. And two of my boys were I have five boys. Two of my boys were born in Peru and are technically American Peruvian citizens until they're eighteen, at least. Um, so that's a little bit of background: who I am, where I came from. All right, and I I kind of want to jump in, I guess. Your book, uh, Birthright, is uh, is an amazing book. I, I, I have to be honest with you. I've been reading it. I'm about halfway through. I haven't I haven't gotten all the way there yet. I, I feel like every week when we talk to somebody, I start reading their book. I try to get through it as fast as I can, but I, I find myself slowing down while I'm reading yours because it's just there's so much information, and i got to step back. i got to take notes. i got to step back. i got to take notes because I'm trying to compile all this. There's so much there, but... I think that, um, well, Justin, we, I want to kind of talk about the kingdom of heaven, right? We, we talked a little bit about that before the show, and I kind of want you to, to, to break down that, that view, the, the kingdom of heaven, and what that, what that looks like uh, based on your interpretation, because it, I've never, you're the first person that kind of, that kind of 
opened my eyes in a way to the way that the the way that you describe it is a lot different than any way I've I've kind of I guess interpreted that before. And it made me think of Game of Thrones. You know, I mean, if you, if you like Game of Thrones and and narrative like that, I mean, the Bible is honestly the the greatest story ever told. And when I, when I read your book, that that's kind of what it put me in the mind of. And I never seen it like that. You really kind of let me look at the Bible in the biblical narrative in a whole new way. And I, I just loved how you articulated that in your book. Well, I guess uh, for me the way that I think about the kingdom of heaven today began with a question. I think it's a very important question, one that is hardly ever, if ever, contemplated, and that is, does the kingdom of heaven have locality? It's a very simple question, but if you begin to think about it, you have you can only answer that question in really fundamentally two ways. Yes or no. Yes, it has locality, meaning that it has a it, it it is a physical place and it exists within the confines of our universe. In other words, you could, in theory, jump into a spacecraft and uh, and arrive at the kingdom of heaven at some point in time. Say, if you had infinite technology to do so, um, or appropriate technology, or or no, the kingdom of heaven does not have locality. That is to say that it is a spiritual, ethereal place that is not like the physical world and that you cannot reach by means of technology. It's outside of the known universe and it exists in some kind of other whatever, other spiritual domain, other dimension, some supernatural realm, and so on. Now, there's only one way that I can answer that question and make any sense of it, and it is, of course, yes, the kingdom of heaven must have locality because we as human beings cannot even contemplate something that doesn't have locality. Like, what does that even mean? If the kingdom of heaven is not an actual place, then what is it? It, it, it almost would seem like a dream then, a, a, a place that only exists on some perceptual level if it doesn't have locality, that is physicality. Uh, if it's not material, then what is it? And people say, well, it's spiritual. N nobody has yet defined appropriately, properly, let me use a better phrase, adequately what the heck a spiritual realm is and how it's different from a physical one. And if you really begin to, to, to think about these things deeply, you realize that we have probably gone and, and made things much more complicated than they need to be in regard to how we understand the way that the, this thing called the kingdom of heaven operates. It, it must have locality in my mind. It, it, it is a place. They eat and drink there. They play music. There's a court. There's a judge. There's a, there's a standing army. Uh, God is referred to more often than not or rather, more often than any other title in the Old Testament, as the Lord of Armies. Now, what in the world is the purpose of an army if not to protect the borders of a domain? And if, if you have an army protecting the borders of a domain, you, 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 we can extrapolate, therefore, that behind this army, within the borders of this domain, exists a civilization. 
what else would be there? What else should we expect to find? And we have detached the rational mind from contemplations regarding the kingdom of heaven. For some reason, we have decided that the best way to think about the kingdom of heaven is to imagine it like, uh, is, to, is to describe it with words that don't explain anything. It's supernatural. Well, what in the heck does that mean? It ha that, that phrase, supernatural, has no explanatory power. I have no idea what somebody means when they say that the kingdom of heaven is supernatural. What do you mean? Do they eat and drink there? They, okay, they have an army. What, what do they, do they carry weapons? And if they carry weapons, can they inflict damage on other kinds of beings? Can they receive damage in their own bodies? Do they have bodies? I mean, you have to get really specific and, and you really can't get specific if you just label everything supernatural or spiritual. And I think we've misunder, misunderstood this, this term spiritual. I think we, we've, we've interpreted this poorly. We think that the word spiritual means ethereal, bodiless. But that can't be the case. Because if angels are spirits, then how is it that they eat and drink? How is it, why is it that they use technology, vehicles of conveyance, the chariots of God, the chariots of Israel sometimes are called? Why is it that you have angels interacting for all intents and purposes in the exact same manner as other human beings within the biblical narrative? Now, the easy question, the lazy question, okay, I'm going to give you the lazy question. And I subscribed to this, you know, this would have been my answer. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the lazy answer, not the lazy question. I, I subscribed to this answer and would offer it up when I was a teenager. And I realized at some point in time, I stopped myself and said, that's really dumb. And the, and the lazy answer is, oh, they can take on physical form. Oh, can they? Are they genies? What else can they do? Is this like the genie from Aladdin? If they can just take on physical form and blink in and out of existence, and are they not God? I mean, what what kind of powers ought we at ought we attribute to these amazing beings? If they can if they can take on flesh and blink in and out of existence, what can't they do? And so it gets absurd. So what I have decided is just to read the narrative presented in the Bible and, and draw rational conclusions. For example, when I see, is it, I believe it's in second Kings. When I see Elijah and Elisha, when Elijah is, is embarking into the, whatever it is, this craft that descends from heaven, picks him up and takes him somewhere else. I don't, Interpret that as a chariot with horses because horses don't fly. I know horses don't fly. You know horses don't fly. There's no reason why I'm obliged to believe that horses fly, that angels fly around in chariots um, being pulled by horses that can fly. There's no reason I'm, I'm obliged to believe that any more than Santa Claus flies around in our atmosphere in a sled. 
with reindeer pulling it. Well, don't ruin it. <laughs> so, so I've sort of just uh, shed these notions. For some reason, as I said, we've we've we, we've been approaching the biblical narrative without rational thinking about these things. The kingdom of heaven does have locality. These entities called angels, they do use technology. They eat and drink. They have physical bodies. Apparently, they can do harm to one another with weapons. Otherwise, what's the point of carrying them? By the way, the flaming swords in the Garden of Eden, uh, that whole, that after the, the eviction, after Adam and Eve's eviction from Eden and the, the, the flaming swords and the, and the guardians protecting the garden, that's not to keep Adam up, in my estimation. That's to keep somebody else out. And, and if that's the case, then, then, then we are talking about very physical beings that would be hindered by some sort of technology or some, some sort of flaming sword technology, whatever that would be, maybe laser technology, I don't know. But, but the point is, I think we are entitled to approach these stories with a rational mind and not look at them like bedtime stories, but rather understand that what's being written down by Iron Age people is in their day and in their day and age is something that we can comprehend in our day and age better than they could. They're writing down, you know, a chariot of fire, but we today have the full capacity to understand that that whereas horses don't fly airplanes do there's such there are we we have advanced aerospace vehicles that fly and dare i say we encounter advanced aerospace vehicles that are far superior to our own that fly therefore it is rational to conclude that this iron age writer was trying to describe an advanced aerospace vehicle, but did not have the terminology to do so. He was using the the best reference that he had, which was a chariot, which was the which was the most advanced form of conveyance at that time. And there's there's nothing anti biblical about approaching these things rationally whatsoever. I'm not required to believe that horses fly, am I? So. Um, so it simply was a process uh, for me, was a process of jettisoning um, what I call Sunday school reductionism, perceiving the world, uh, the, the biblical narrative, in sort of this, this, you know, coloring book way, as I say in my book, and, it's, it, and the reason why that that's the way I describe it is because I, I, I have vivid memories of being in Sunday school, coloring pictures of like Noah standing there with a big smile, goofy smile on his face with a bunch of happy animals in a, in a boat. When that totally does not reflect whatsoever what that story is about, like at all. In fact, it's the opposite uh, of sure what he, that story actually conveys. Sure, he wasn't smiling much. Well, I mean, it was, who was it? We were talking about it and he's like, yeah, you know, Noah's smiling with dead corpses bouncing off the hull of the boat. 
You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't sunshine it and rainbows at that time. It was rainbows after. Yeah. Well, well, his whole crayon story, I just went back. See, I was raised Southern Baptist. That's you know, I so I was in the back, you know, with my coloring book, and the preacher was screaming at the top of his lungs, you know, you're going to burn, you're going to go to hell. I was immediately just dropping my crayons like, oh, my God. <laughs> I do want to say one thing to your point, um, for sure. A, a couple of verses here. What I got is Revelation 21, uh, 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. So if if we're talking about the old earth and the old earth had passed away, why would we call the new earth, which is actually part of heaven as well, why would that? Why would we have a different name for it? It, it would be the same thing, right? If there's an earth now, we're here. There's a new earth that's still earth. You know what I mean? It's the new earth, the new heaven, a new earth that is going to come down after that time. It's you know, Revelation is very tricky because it is like it's written in the form of prophecy. It's very much like the book of Daniel, for example. It's very much like the book of Isaiah. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. So what's happening is remember how it begins. I was in. I was on. Well, John was on the island of Patmos, and he was in the spirit on the on the Lord's day. And then what happened? He began to have a perceptual experience. And you know, and I don't mean this to sound. I don't mean this to sound negative, but, but his perception was hijacked so that he could be shown things that were relevant to the future. And so um, the entirety of the book of Revelation is written from this perceptual experience. And so he's being, John is being conveyed information. And that information is, as I so often say, it's like downloading a bunch of zip files. They have to be unzipped. They have to be unpacked. You have to extract the information. So whatever I encounter in the book of Revelation, I automatically assume that, what, that what's being described is symbolic, that, that, that what's being described is, is metaphoric or even allegory. So I have no idea when you talk about a new heaven and a new earth um, what exactly that means. Uh, if you were to... And this is just a thought. I'm not saying that I subscribe to this notion, but this is just a thought that popped into my head. Let's say there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, from whose perspective? If it's from our perspective, if you were to take the human species off of this planet and put us on a different one, is there not effectively a new heaven and a new earth from our vantage point? You're standing on a different planet and you're looking up at a different sky, correct? I so so I, have no, I have no idea you know, what a new heaven and a new earth is precisely, does it mean that everything is going to be recreated? Um, does it mean that there's going to be like a, a, a different set of physical laws? Um, I don't know. I have no idea. But it may be something much more, much less complicated let's say than than what we think it may it, it, it may be very uh simple and uh, because again this language the the language of revelation is the language of prophecy and prophecy is by nature esoteric as you said as you one of you was i heard one of you say in the beginning that it is the glory of god to conceal a thing and so that's the nature of prophecy it's esoteric esoteric simply means that it's the it's the intentional obscuring of information. 
And who would do that? Why would you ever obscure information that you want people to have? Because it's not about an immediate revelation. It's about one that needs to be transmitted through time. And to be, and hidden, so, to be hidden from people. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm getting long-winded here. No, you no, know, you're you're awesome. I'm I'm loving this. This is you're opening you're opening a lot of questions and a lot of uh, thoughts that are going through my head. But um, now I lost my train of thought. Well, what I was thinking when you was talking about the bodies. It, it says we get a new body when we go to heaven. So that would, we shed our earthly body and get a new one. Now, well, I don't think it says we get a, a new body in the sense that, you know, this body I'm wearing right now is is just going to go away and I'm going to get a brand new one. Rather, this body is going to be reconstituted. And God only needs one of your cells, by the way to reconstitute you. you all of your genetic material is can, can be accessed and so and that's why paul says and i always botch this i should just look it up and, and post it note it to my to my screen here uh paul talks about unless uh unless a colonel falls to the to the ground and dies and then paraphrasing what he says next then then it can't it can't live anew right it can't be grow into something new well it's not growing into something new per se it's creating a replica of what was what it came from in other words that's it's this it's the same idea if you die let's say only one of your cells is preserved just one but entirely intact you have your genetic material you can be completely reconstituted all it is is a code it's information and so um the, at the resurrection we get our bodies back but without the genetic, but without the mutational load, without the uh, genetic degeneration that has happened to us as a consequence of sin. So we get reset to the blueprint of Adam. Not that we're all going to look the same. We're all going to look like we look now, but without any kind of flaw, without any kind of genetic defect. Well, I guess that would um, make sense because he says, you know, you'll be known as you were known. Exactly. So. You're and just... and and it, well, we have a representation. We know exactly what the resurrection looks like, because Jesus was raised from the dead. He's the firstborn of all of those who are going to be raised from the dead to to eternal life. Everyone's going to be raised from the dead, by the way, but not everyone is going to be remade, uh, reconstituted, reset to the blueprint of Adam to enter back into the family of God. Not everyone. Some people are going to be raised, judged, and pay terribly for their sin in hell. Before I think they're annihilated in the lake of fire that's another conversation but um so the you know, jesus as i said he is the template for the resurrection and we have a whole lot of information uh, about jesus post-resurrection we know for example that he had the markings of the crucifixion in his hands and 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 he had the scar in his side from being stabbed with the spear this was jesus in the flesh and in fact, the, he used these markings to prove to Thomas that he was, in fact, Christ risen from the dead. And, and so we're going to be, we're told in the New Testament that we're going to be just as he is, so also shall we be. In other words, we're, be, we're going to become like him. We're going, to be, we're going to die. There's only a very, very small sliver of humanity that's not going to die. But the rest of us are going to die. And then if we die believing in Christ, clinging to him for salvation, then we're going to be raised up and, and literally born again. 
and and being born again is the resurrection by the way um i think that this and of course i'm just sort of i'm i'm oh what would i say i'm flinging around a whole lot of i'm making a theological mess of your show right now let's put it that way i'm crossing uh. i'm crossing a bunch of theological streams jumping back and forth but but um you know, I, I don't I don't subscribe to this notion that that human beings that uh, that that uh, believers in Christ can be born again before the resurrection. I think that being born again is precisely is the resurrection, and it makes perfect sense. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you go back into your mother's womb and you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well. We know that that's the case. You're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven without the resurrection. That is the prerequisite. You have to merit the resurrection. And meriting the resurrection isn't meriting salvation through works. Rather, it's you have to, you have, that's, it's baptism. We identify with the death of Christ when we go under the water. This is a, it's a public, it's a public declaration. We're identifying with Christ, with his death. That's what the water represents. And then coming up out of the water is resurrection. And so we believe in his death. And just as Jesus was died and was bodily resurrected, so shall we who die in him also be resurrected, raised from the grave, uh, raised to life. That's, that's what baptism is. And so the, the, the resurrection is the rectification of, of the human condition. It was the hope and is the hope of the church going to heaven and all these other things that, that you know, living your best life now and, and being successful and having a lot of peace and joy in your life. None of that is the traditional hope of the ancient church. The hope of the ancient church was exclusively in the resurrection because you can do whatever you want to do to me now, but, but because I believe in Christ, because I'm clinging to Christ, I know that when I die, just as he rose from the grave, so too shall I also rise from the grave and be like him in the sense that my body will be reconstituted because that's exactly what happened to Christ. He didn't get a new body. His body, with all of the wounds of the resurrection, of the uh, crucifixion, was reconstituted, brought to life, and reconstituted in the sense that the cells were brought back to life, and his body was was uh, was raised bodily from the grave. Part of the creed that so many of us believe, and indeed, believing that Jesus was raised bodily from the grave is fundamental to faith in Christ, because he wasn't just raised in spirit, it wasn't just his consciousness, his literal body was in the grave, was in the tomb, and the stone was rolled away, and he got up and walked out. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to insure your home and auto with the Better Insurance Agency. So even if you don't know your tabernacle from your tallest, we will still help you shop through multiple insurance companies to find the right coverage and low price. Whether it is home or auto, life insurance, or insurance for your small business, the Better Insurance Agency will be there to help. After all, 
A better future is built on a firm foundation. Find out more and visit us at www.thebetterquote.com today. Available only in Virginia and Tennessee. Yeah, and it's spiritual warfare, you know, when you look at it like that. I mean, you're 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 flinging up your your spiritual battle flag because you know, right when Jesus died, you know, in Second Peter, it says that he went down into Tartarus and proclaimed victory of those in prison. You know, it says, and it specifically says, you know, it, it references them and saying uh, for the ones that. Uh, when God's patience waded through the flood. So it's talking about the Genesis 6 fallen angels. And throughout history, you see through all these different, you know, occults and religion, all the veneration of their dead ancestors and all these different rituals they were trying to resurrect and bring back their, their dead ancestors, you know, these fallen angels. So, you know, it's like, uh, like how Derek Gilbert said it, you know, they he went down into uh, prison where they were at and proclaimed victory to him and said, you know, hey, you guys won't uh, be venerated and resurrect so bad, but hey, watch me in three days. I'm getting out, and you're still going to be dead. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I just I want to go ahead and say you don't have to worry about um, uh, kind of messing with people's theology because the whole point of this show is to get people to dig into their Bibles on their own. We want people to get into the Word. The whole point of the show is to get people to, 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 you know, question the things they've been spoon-fed, and really dive in and figure it out for themselves. Because that's what God wants you to do. He want. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people in the church, you know, they'll go to church on Sunday, listen to what one person tells them, never pick up their Bible and just go, "That's it." But you're 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 listening to a man tell you what, and and. Don't get me wrong. There are amazing, amazing preachers, amazing pastors out there. <clears throat> I think we have one uh, at our church that I think is truly spirit led. But the thing is, when you're listening to one man and you're not going back and double checking with what God actually said, that's where that's where the majority of the church is failing. I would agree. To, I would agree with that to a degree. Uh I think it's important for people, for Christians, to be familiar, first and foremost, with the New Testament, because faith in Christ ultimately is the most important thing. Now, obviously, the Old Testament, it speaks of Christ, but in a veiled way. It is important to understand, I think, to understand the narrative, the, the through narrative of the gospel of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And so I, my caveat to what you said was, I feel like... Um, that there are a lot of I, I kind of got in trouble because I posted something on, on I responded to something on Twitter uh, to a well-known theologian or somebody I can't remember um, exactly what the situation was but but they said how important is it for Christians to read their Bibles and or daily or something like that and and I replied well something to the effect of well. What's important is that Christians understand the gospel of Christ, and they understand why they believe in the gospel of Christ. That's the important thing, that you A, you can articulate what the gospel is, and B, you can defend it. And you can, you can give an answer to why it is that you are absolutely convinced that the gospel of Christ is true. Now, there are a whole lot of Christians who read their Bibles a lot and can't do either of those things. Um, and so... I feel like there's there's 
I would I would add, to, although I agree with your statement, I would add to it, and I would say, digging into the scriptures um, is only profitable in so much as it causes the believer to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And why do I say that? Because I've watched a whole lot of people over the last five years, seven years, ten years, walk away from the faith because they've subscribed to all different kinds of strange theologies that were derived uh, from very, let's say, hostile viewpoints in regards to the gospel, which at first don't appear hostile, but ultimately end up being hostile. And, and of course, I'm referencing directly, and hopefully this doesn't, uh, hopefully I'm not stepping on any of your toes right now, but, but um, I'm referencing directly Hebrew roots. For, Amen, for example. brother. We've for, been battling that for a while on this show. For, right, for example, so Hebrew roots, they can, you, you will be hard-pressed to know more about the Old Testament than someone who's gone deep into Hebrew roots. Deep. But those people, many times, perhaps more often than not, first they abandon Paul, and then they abandon Christ. Yes, that's that's the that's and flat Earth is in there somewhere too. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it happen to me. It's very personal because I've seen it happen around me, Same. to friends of mine and, and associates and and um, acquaintances, and so it. It, it's sort of a sore spot because I've watched that doctrine specifically wreak havoc on Christians because they didn't understand that what the gospel of Christ was, A, and, and, and B, um, they, did, they had no apologetics. They didn't know why they believed what they believed precisely. And so when somebody came along and offering them this new mysterious perspective on the Old Testament, which some of it is very good, very good, and and then this this new religious pursuit that is Hebrew roots, um, they abandoned very, very quickly, abandoned what is, what is the traditional faith in Christ to hold on to, to go after this, this other theological perspective. And that tells me that they really never understood the gospel and they certainly we're not equipped to defend it. Um, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking about specifically the gospel of Christ, what exactly it is, and why we believe it. And so um, my answer is always a little bit different when people say, when, when people talk about uh, reading the scriptures, it's always, my answer is always this. First, make sure that you understand the gospel. Like you really, really understand it and that you can defend it like defend the historicity of christ and then go digging Amen. because because i've watched too many people fall into hebrew roots um you know running after first of all starting off with the nephilim topic and then from there going one thing leads to another one 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 internet personality leads to another and before you know it you know people who've who've were professing believers for years and years suddenly are believing a different gospel. 
Um, and uh, I don't know why I went through all that. Maybe it's relevant to because no, it's oh, the Holy Ghost you, moving through you right you, there, it, brother. Unfreaking believable. We're sitting here, our jaws said. are dropping. But that's the same thing. What you talk about, exactly. That's the the verse, First Peter three fifteen, right? Always be able to defend the the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. That that verse was that was my dad's favorite verse. That exact thing. So you know. You know, the gospel, it's it's truly, you know, why we're why we're saved ultimately. But right. the way the way I always look at the is and I look at, at, at Judaism as a whole. When we talk about, you know, you can talk about Hebrew roots is but Judaism as a whole was where, you know, they came halfway. We we that's we right. are, we are 100 percent like that's Good the point. birth of our religion. That's the birth of what we believe. Well, but they didn't yeah. take it. They didn't take it the whole way. Well, I want you to, and, this, and I'm glad you said that because you sort of you you reminded me of of my final point, which which is which is entirely relevant to what you just said. So I want you to think about the Pharisees and Sadducees, of whom Paul was one. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees knew the Torah inside and out, and now, of course, they had a bunch of their own traditions mixed in there. And they were unscrupulous fellows for the most part. Not all of them. You had your Nicodemus here and there. But for the most part, they were unscrupulous, hypocritical religious people. But nobody could ever claim that they didn't know their Torah. They knew the law and the prophets, backward and forward. But guess what? They didn't get the memo. Because they couldn't see the Son of God standing right in front of them. And so you tell me of what prophet was the law and the prophets to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It would have been better for them to never have read one single page, one single sentence on the scroll of the prophets or the Torah. It would have been better for them, or the law of the, and the prophets. Um, because they were, they're, they're going to be even more condemned because they did know. They knew better, but yet they didn't get the memo. See, they, they knew the scriptures. They knew the Torah back in front, but they never discerned the gospel of Christ. And this is what happens to people who fall into, the, into, into these, these theological ruts, like, like uh, uh, I should say, who fall into these, these theological pits like snares, like uh, Hebrew roots, and, and others, many others. It's because they don't discern the gospel first and foremost and then learn why they believe. They're not thoroughly converted in their minds about the gospel of Christ. Because if they were, they would never dream of abandoning it for whatever, you know, insert whatever, Gnosticism, Hebrew roots, whatever. And so um, I, I was talking to uh, another researcher recently, and we were commenting, he happens to be a pastor, and we were commenting, we were agreeing that, you know, in this community, and by the way, this is why <clears throat> I appreciate your guys' podcast, but I was, we were talking about how there are so many new people who are becoming interested in all these different topics um, regarding Nephilim, of course, the whole Genesis 6 thing, transhumanism, all this stuff. But, but our concern is that 
people are, you have all these people who understand the, who are interested, fascinated by these topics, but, 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 but don't have any sort of, I'm going to use this term theological footing. Uh, and are are wayward in, in 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 regard to their theological perspective, and I'm not saying that my theological perspective is like 100 percent right. Like the things we were talking about before, you know, I just I just uh, I I speculate about things like everybody else. But I'll tell you what, I know what the gospel of Christ is, and I know why I believe in the gospel. And you can strip away Nephilim from me. You can take Nephilim off the table. You can take all these all these interesting topics off the table, all these things that sort of draw people into this space and just leave me with the gospel of Christ and I'd be perfectly content. And my concern is not for you guys by any means. I don't know why I'm saying this, but it's not addressed to you. Maybe somebody out there listening to this needs to hear this. But some people, I feel like if you were to remove all of the, all of the, the fascinating things, take them out of the equation, that if and all they're left with is the gospel, that they would walk away. A because they don't understand the gospel, and B because they haven't yet truly appreciated it. And so, and so anyway, I don't know why I got under that tangent. But I think that's a great point because we talk about and we go into uh, we've talked about the Nephilim. We've talked about you know all these other topics that that people find fascinating i find them fascinating i love talking I about i find them fascinating i talk about them ad nauseum <laughs> but but the whole thing is is that those are non-salvation issues you you know if you have the gospel under wraps like you're talking about if you have the gospel and and you truly fully believe that these other things these you know when we talk about and we've talked about this at, a lot when we talk about the other lowercase g gods and the different pantheons through the Greek, all this, all this stuff is us talking and some conjecture, looking at mythology and, and different things that happen throughout time. But in the end, whether or not that's right or wrong, that doesn't uh, that in the end, we're going to be wrong about things. We all know that we're all going to be wrong about some things. When we get up there, we're going to figure it out, but we're all going to be wrong about things. But important thing is that we get up there. Or wherever there is, you know, as we wherever as, there as is. you as that physical place that you talked about prior. Yeah, and I, you know, I commend you for that. And of course, my 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 comments were not directed at you guys. It was just stream of thought. Um, I guess because I was having this conversation recently with my pastor friend, so that's sort of what's been stirring around in my in in, in my brain matter. Is, I'm uh, glad you followed it. Thank you. Well, so do you want me to do you want me to talk about uh, I think one of you in the beginning um, were mentioning um, aliens? Well, I think I think that um, my God, I'll tell you what, the way you opened this whole thing was awesome. That just I can't even my jaw. Well, Stephen, still, you're going to have to say your phrase before we go there. Oh, OK, we're going to have to back it up. Just back it up. But anyway. I'm going to say, Tim, seriously, in all this, everything you just said, you somebody could walk in this room right now, and I would tell you right now that the Holy Spirit, 100%, was in this room, was oh, making was that happen, because it. everything you said all speaks to, to things that we've been going through personally yes. with, with, with people we know, with, with situations that have happened. Everything you just said, there is no other way around that than divine intervention. There's no, just no way I, you can't you couldn't convince me otherwise. It what it, what you just said was 
My jaw is still on the floor. It's amazing. But glossing over all that, just everything that just happened that was amazing. Um, when we talk about, um, we actually talked to Ellie uh, Marzuli a couple days ago. Um, we we tried to get into a couple things, that, um, and uh, and there's there's still some more stuff on the table. I'd love to talk to him about, but I really want to talk about. We're seeing it in the news. We're seeing it all around us. You hear every day about some kind of disclosure. You hear every day about these things. But, you know, us as a as as the church, a lot of times we push these things under the rug. We don't want to talk about them because it's weird. It's something different. It doesn't fit in with our theology um, when you when you talk about it. So I think it's really important that we as Christians are prepared because, as I said before, know thine enemy. What what are we what are we facing? Why is this stuff in the news? Why is this getting pushed on us? And then why are we as Christians just sweeping it under the rug because we don't want to we don't want to know? It's not comfortable. It's you know. Do you see what I'm saying? In regard to aliens. Yes. Well, it's very simple. If you start from the perspective that. I'm going to sort of just jump to the punchline here. If you start from the perspective that that technically angels are aliens, then all of the controversy just will sort of melt away or or will kick into high gear depending on what the what the, the conversation how the conversation goes. Yeah, by, by definitions, going. by definition not of None of this world. The Earth is an alien. <laughs> That's what I've always said about the ancient alien stuff. I'm like, they're knocking all over the door, but they're missing. They're missing a very what? important piece. And it's like, yeah, you know, if you want to get technical about it, you know, aliens, God, angels. I mean, they're they're not of this world. So technically, yeah, they are extraterrestrial. It's just no question know, about it. Yeah, you know, ancient aliens. Uh, I knew the producer of ancient aliens, a guy named Kevin Burns. Um, and he, and, and, and he knew he kind of, well, I won't go down that road. I had some interesting conversations with him. So let me back up. Um, ancient aliens is a show that draws laughably ridiculous conclusions about some things, but they start off with a biblical premises. So a premise rather, um, the premise is that mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials since ancient times. That is unquestionably, unequivocally, a biblical paradigm. And even little children understand that. Now, we don't use the term extraterrestrial. We should. But we don't because it's not a biblical term. The Bible defines these beings in various ways. The most ambiguous designation is angel. Angel simply means a messenger, an envoy, one who is sent. It doesn't define the nature of a being. It just defines the occupation of a being. In fact, even human beings are referred to as angels in, in a couple of occasions in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's a job title. That's right. It's it's a it's a it's a descriptor of occupation, and so, uh, but but 
thankfully, that's not the only term that we have for these beings. We have other terms such as, and in at least one occasion, they're called the morning stars. Okay, well, let's unpack that for a minute. Morning stars. What are two things about that phrase that jump out at you? Morning, that moniker rather, morning stars. Well, the morning, morning conveys first, right? First, it's, it's the, the morning conveys preexistence first. And stars are things that are out there. They're not here on the earth. They're extraterrestrial. And so the very phrase, the very uh, appellation, morning stars, conveys, is, begins to convey the nature, the, a little bit, it, gives, it gives us a little bit more detail about these entities. Then, of course, we have the appellation, Benai Elohim, sons of God. And so now we're getting even a little bit more information because angel doesn't tell us anything. But morning stars and now sons of God, now we can start to put together a picture here. So we have beings who, who are not from the earth, who were created early on, earlier than mankind, who pre-exist mankind, and who are members of a family, right? I mean, again, I'm, I just try to be as rational as possible when, 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 when approaching these things. Um, so so when, we, when we encounter these beings in the narrative, in the biblical narrative, not in the context of a perceptual experience, in other words, in the context of prophetic iconography, rather, in real life, the, the, the historical narrative of the Old Testament and New Testament, when we encounter these entities... They always are described in, 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 the, in the same basic ways. In other words, they don't, they're not like these humongous things with wings and, you know, whatever. They just look like us. Rather, we look like them in every case, every single case. Now, people are going to start to cite, um, they're going to start to cite instances of angels with wings and things in their minds that come from prophetic iconography. Those are visions. Those are dreams. Those are that. a prophet sitting next to the river writing in the scroll while he's like, and I don't mean to I don't mean this to use this pejoratively, while he's tripping basically, and he's having this perceptual experience that God has initiated with him to to convey information. So everything's symbolic in that world. So, um, in that state of mind, when, 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 when you're being, when information is being downloaded through a perceptual experience, it's all symbolic, unless you are physically standing there. So, um, which I don't think is ever the case. I could be wrong, and in, 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 in maybe there's one instance that I'm, that's escaping me, but, um, from the, from the biblical narrative, but. Um, every time we encounter these beings outside of the context of prophecy or perceptual experience, they're prosaic. They're eating, they're drinking, they're interacting with 
other human beings in, in a relatively normal way. Now, yes, they seem to possess extraordinary capabilities or, dare I say, technologies. But, but other than that, for all intents and purposes, they're people, just like we're people. Yeah, and even told, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, basically be mindful because you could be entertaining angels unaware. Exactly. And, you know, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you, or you think about Sodom, and Lot is sitting outside the gates of Sodom, and he sees two gentlemen approaching the gates. He suddenly recognizes these men as angels. How did he do that? How did he recognize that these two men were angels? I always thought they, they were beautiful. flapping wings? Well, I mean, certainly. And then, but these men, they stroll into town, Right? There isn't a big throng around them yet. They stroll into town. Lot comes up to them. He recognizes who they are. Well, well, surely Lot is able to recognize them because, and I may just, I may, I may be completely. Lot was uh, Abraham's nephew, correct? Uh, because his uncle Abraham surely told him about these beings and what they look like because Abraham interacted with them. In fact, they ate and drank with Abraham. And guess what? That's exactly what they did with Lot. So Lot takes him into his home and they have supper. They eat and drink. Are we to believe that they're just taking on flesh, so to speak? They're putting on a show, pretending to eat and drink? Or are these guys actually eating and drinking? And if they're actually eating and drinking, does it not follow that that's because they actually eat and drink? That that's what they, they, they have. They have biology very similar to ours and that wherever they're from, not the earth, they're certainly extraterrestrial. Do they eat and drink somewhere else? Might it be in the kingdom of heaven that, as I cont contend, has locality somewhere in the universe? And so... These beings, they, they sup with Lot, and of course we know the story. The men of Sodom gather around the door because they're Sodomites, and, and they want Lot to turn these men out to them so that they can have their way with them. Not because these men were freak shows with big flapping wings and whatever, but because these were very comely, handsome men, probably young men, probably look like they're in their anywhere from their mid-20s to early 30s. And... But the point is, there was something about these men that Lot, there was some sort of an attribute, a physical attribute that enabled Lot to recognize them. And so I contend that angels, although we look very much like them, there are some distinctions. I believe that Lot, obviously Lot and the, and the other, uh, the people of Sodom were, were were Semitic, were Semitic people, which means that they were darker in skin, darker eyes, just like the Semitic people today. These angels probably did not look that way. They probably looked more like fair skin, clear eyes, maybe blonde hair. So, but, but, but they looked like us enough to where they would not have been mistaken for anything else than humans unless, unless you had some in additional information which Lot would have had from Abraham. So they would have looked like strange foreigners, certainly. But when Lot saw these guys, they had some sort of attribute that, that he recognized. 
you recognize they're angels. The, the Sodomites, this people of Sodom, didn't recognize that they were angels. Rather, they just recognized that they were comely, that they were handsome. So what is my point in, in saying all of this? The angels are not so very different than we are. And it makes perfect sense. Why? Because Adam was created to be a son of God amongst the other sons of God who pre-existed him. The sons of God, the writer of Job says, the sons of God shouted for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. They are therefore pre-existent. They pre-exist mankind. But, but wait a minute, but they're sons of God. So that means these are sons in the family of God. These are members of the divine family. I'm not saying they're gods. Rather, they're sons of God. That's what the text clearly says. That's what the text clearly says. We know because of the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth that Adam was also a son of God. Just put two and two together. What does that make them? It Just simple arithmetic. If you have, if you have preexistent angelic sons, and then you have Adam, who's also a son, but he's a, he's a man, he's a new kind of creature, he's a man. What does that make those elder sons and this younger son does it not make them siblings are they not members of the same family i don't believe that these that these uh that these this terminology is incidental it's intentional adam was a son of god he was the younger brother he was created to be a little lower than the heavenly beings he's the younger brother and I love when you made that connection in your book because then I saw the, the parable of the prodigal son in a whole new light. That's right. The parable of the prodigal son is, it's, it's of course, a parable of Jesus, and it's, it's really a beautiful illustration of the gospel, and it begins in the Father's house. Now, does it have a superficial, um, does it have a more superficial interpretation regarding Israel and Judah? Sure. But the deeper interpretation, the one that fits better, is the one pertaining to Adam. Two brothers, two siblings in the father's house. An older brother and a younger brother. The father, there's a family. That's why the, the language in Scripture regarding, uh, regarding believers in Christ is familial. We're brothers and sisters. We are part of a family, and God is our Father. So, so, and we're not the only members of the family. And see, that's what I love, though, because that was, you know, the the kingdom standpoint, and then the elder brother standpoint. How how you made those in the book, 
that those were honestly my, like my favorite parts of the whole book because then I did I seen that parable of the, the prodigal son in a whole new light and it's like and it's things we've always knew and been told in church you know yes we're all brothers and sisters in Christ God is the father but then when you look at the whole angelic realm as our elder brother you know and that's why it says you know you are your brother's keeper when we were in the garden our elder brothers was supposed to, you know, look after us and take care of us, but you know, Deuteronomy thirty two. Deuteronomy thirty two. They were they were put in charge over us. Yeah, and it said, you know, and what it say, Jacob was his allotted inheritance. Well only you know, like Doug Van Dorn said in our episode, well only sons get inheritances. You know, so right. we connect those dots, man, it's just like really really eye opening, gives you a whole new appreciation for the the biblical narrative listen listen carefully to what paul wrote to the ephesians this is this is one of the most i think paradigm busting verses in the new testament listen carefully to what paul tells them to me who am less than the least of all the saints this grace was given that i should preach among the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose for which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, that's a loaded couple of verses there that, that, that Paul, Paul, Paul says a few things in there that are quite astounding. He, 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 he reiterates that everything was created through Jesus, which is amazing. Everything was created through the Son of God and for the Son of God. He talks about principalities, which, by the way, principality means a, it indicates a realm rather than a being, even though I know that the word principality is sometimes derived from the word archon, which is a, which is, which really is uh, equivalent to like a governor or a prince, something like that. You don't have a governor or a prince without a realm. And by the way, the earth is not their realm, it's ours. That's, that's crystal clear in the scriptures. But then you have at the end, by the way, the fellowship of the mystery also. That, I remember being a teenager in that, that phrase, the fellowship of the mystery. Now people say, and this is true, what is the fellowship of the mystery? Well, it is that the, that the Gentiles would be part of what? Would be, would be part of what? The, the, the family of Abraham, right? Well, that's just the surface level because we're not talking about Abraham here. That's not the end game. The end game is Adam, okay? The, the, our problem didn't start with Abraham. It started with Adam. So, so the fullness of this fellowship of the mystery isn't about just about Gentiles being grafted into Abraham's family. Rather, it's about Adam's offspring being grafted back into the family of God. That's what it's about. And the siblings in that family are referenced at the end of this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family 
in heaven and on earth is named. See, Paul understood that we're siblings in a family. We were supposed to be. The great tragedy, the great tragedy is the, is the, the eviction, the sunderance of mankind from the family of God. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is rescuing the offspring of Adam and bringing them back into the family. And that's what the parable of the prodigal son is all about. And that's why Jesus says on the eve of the crucifixion, when he's supping with his disciples, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, then I will come back and get you so that you may be where I am. He's evoking the parable of the prodigal son because Jesus brings us back into the Father's house. He rescues us. He, he purchases, us, purchases us back from the swineherd, who's an archetype of Satan. That's called redemption. He, he atones for our sins through the cross and brings peace with the Father because we, when we're born, when we come roiling in blood and water out of our mother's womb, we are born into a, into a condition of enmity with God, according to the New Testament. But the, but the cross of Christ brings peace. That means reconciliation, which means we're brought back into fellowship with God through the cross. So we've been redeemed from the swineherd so that we might be, so Christ redeemed us from the swineherd so that we might be reconciled to the Father. But that's not where it ends. See, reconciliation happens so that we might be restored back into the family, and restored to everything that was lost in Adam. Everything that is lost in Adam is regained in the second Adam, in Christ Jesus. So, so this, there's this beautiful picture of mankind going back into the family of God, but we've kind of missed it because we haven't understood this. this, this we haven't understood that we were created to be part of a family. Because why haven't we understood that? Because we have something, we're, ham, we're hamstrung with this, with something called an anthropocentric perspective of the universe. We think everything revolves around us. Anthropocentric means man-centric. So I always tell people, imagine a wheel, and at the center of that wheel is a hub. And according to the anthropo, that wheel represents the universe, and the different spokes on that wheel represent all the different players, angels, whatever, in the universe. But at the center of that wheel, it's us. We're the crowning achievement of that. That we, we, are the, we are God's crowning achievement. How many times have you heard that? No, we're not. David says we were created to be a little lower than the heavenly beings. We weren't the crowning creation, the crowning achievement. Now, we are exceptional in the sense that the Son of God did not become an angel to die for angels. He became became a man to die for men. So yes, we are exceptional in that sense. But we are not this, the, the focal point of the universe. We are not the center of the story. And some Christians tend to recoil when I say that. No, that's not the correct biblical perspective. The, the correct biblical perspective, which Paul articulated there in Ephesians, is that Christ is the center of all things. He's at the hub. He, it's him. He's at the hub of that wheel. It's his story. It's his universe. It was created by him and through him and for 
him and in him all things consist, he's the center point. He's the focal point, not us. And so because we have this idea that mankind was the crowning, God's crowning creation, we, we can't imagine that we were part of a family. And our elder, we have elder siblings. That's why I call them, call them the elder race in my book. We have elder siblings. Guess what? They were here before we were. When I say here, I mean in the universe. They were in the universe before we were, obviously. And they're not from the earth. They, they shouted for joy when the foundations of the earth were laying. That makes them extraterrestrial. Because the word extraterrestrial simply means something that's not from the earth. So if you're a being whose provenance is not planet Earth, you are by definition extraterrestrial. They are extraterrestrial. They are our extraterrestrial siblings in the family of God. Those of us who are, who are being rescued by Christ and being brought back into the family because Christ went to prepare a place for us. Where? In the family, in his father's house. And he's going to come back and get us so that we might be with him. Where? In his father's house. It's about the family. We were made to be a part of it. So there's nothing. You can't, you can't trump that. There's no religion. There's no Zoroasterism or Buddhism or Hinduism or, or, or Islam. There's no religion that tops that. You can have all your virgins. You can have all your whatever you get, you know, enlightenment or whatever with Buddha. You can have all of that. I want to go back into the family. Amen. You can't top that. Going back into the family of God, fellowshipping with our maker and our elder siblings in that family, nothing, nothing can top that. Nothing. There is no religion on the face of the planet that offers anything even close, even approximating that. Because we were created for fellowship with the creator of the universe. We were created to fellowship in the family of God. And, 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 and even with these elder siblings of ours who are amazing beings. They're not human, by the way. These are not human beings. Their nature is different from ours. Their physiology is different in some way from ours. But they are physical. This is a physical place. I mean, I mean, the Israelites ate the, the grain of heaven, the writer of Psalm says. They, they ate the grain of heaven in the wilderness, which they baked in the bread, the sustenance of the angels. Well, where do we get grain? Where do we get grain? We get it from like a wheat plant, or we get it from barley or something like that. We get it from a plant. So if, if you have this grain sprinkled around on the ground when the, when, the, when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they would go gather it and bake it into bread. And, that's, and, and the psalmist says that that's the sustenance of the angels. Then my question is, were they eating extraterrestrial grain that was grown somewhere else, maybe even on a different planet, harvested by this other civilization? That they bake into bread? I mean, the psalmist said it was, it is, it was the sustenance of angels, manna. And manna just means, what is it? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm asking, what is it? If it's the bread of angels, the grain of, if it's the grain of heaven, the bread of angels, 
then am I not entitled to conclude that somewhere this angelic race is harvesting wheat and baking bread? So, anyway. You got um, me wanting to try it really bad. I'm just huh? saying. You got me wanting to try it really bad. It that sounds delicious. Sounds like that bread don't <laughs> give you any carbs. They ain't going to put no weight on you. That's what it's I'm heaven, talking about. It's heavenly. I know it. Think they got you know, butter? It, isn't it so much more exciting to think that wherever these things are taking place, we're going to get to see this place, and we're going to get, we are going to get to eat that bread, and we are going to get to sit at the table and dine with the angels, with these, with our elder siblings, and more importantly, with the Son of God, literally drinking wine and eating bread and whatever else goes on there. The music, the dancing, all of it. It's not some ethereal fairy tale. It's so much closer to us than we have perceived. I hope that the people listening to this can have the same, like, you you put it into such a, it's almost like a poetic way that you put it. That's It's such a, uh, I don't even know how to put it. It's, it actually has me excited. I mean, I'm and I mean, you. I'm always excited for this guy. I mean, I don't I, think anybody's ever seen Timothy Alberino preach, but you've preached tonight, brother. <laughs> you're, and I've loved you're it. You're on fire. I've loved it. I, this is amazing. It has been, I'm, I'm loving this so far. We only got six hours left, buddy. So yeah. let's just keep on trucking. <laughs> but before we do let you go, I think it'd be really good to tie in in your book. Uh, you was talking about the, the divine family, you know, and reconciliation. Uh, would you go into talking about how and what the scroll is in Revelation? Well, that ties into the premise of my book, which is, that's what I call birthright. The birthright of mankind is dominion of the earth. So as I said, man was created for two reasons. Adam was created for two reasons, fellowship and the family of God and governance of the earth. See, the sons of God govern. They govern. They're in, they're, think of it as a kingdom. It's a royal family, right? There's a royal family. And the sons in the family, they're the princes. They govern. That's why Jesus is called the prince of princes in the book of Daniel. What does a prince do? A prince governs. So the sons of God govern. Our realm, which is not the only one, our realm is governed by the sons and daughters of Adam. The earth is governed by the sons and daughters of Adam. So God bequeathed to Adam the deed of the earth and made him a vice regent on this planet. He said, have dominion. He didn't say take dominion. He said, here, have dominion. And over everything, by the way, everything. And that includes any other intelligent entities inhabiting this planet we're the governors we are not them we are they're subject to our governance that's why paul says don't you know that you're going to judge angels what angels is he talking about the ones that transgress in our realm because even though i'm an american from the united states if i go to iran and break their laws even if it's a law even if it's not breaking it a law in my country if i do something that's a that is a transgression against their law, no matter how absurd, guess what? Me, even though I'm an American, I'm subject to their dominion over their sovereign state. 
so they judge me. I don't get sent back to America to be judged by American judges. I'm judged by Iranian judges if I break the law in their land. In the same way, we're the governors of the earth. Any interlopers who come here and break and transgress, we will judge them because we were given dominion of the earth. And so um, so this is setting up the scene for the scroll that you referenced. So picture the deed of the earth, this scroll being handed to Adam, you and your offspring forever. And remember that Paul says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the deed of the earth. It belongs to the sons and daughters of mankind for, for all time, the sons and daughters of Adam. This should sound really familiar to people who grew up reading the Chronicles in Narnia like I did. So, so mankind was given dominion of the earth. This is our birthright. How do we inherit this birthright? Through our genome. And this goes into the image of God, which we probably don't have time to talk about, but it's inherited, not merited. The birthright of the earth is inherited by the offspring of Adam and Eve, good, bad, or indifferent. It's not merited. That's why the Bible says that if a, if a righteous man rules, the people rejoice. If a wicked man rules, the people mourn. You get what you deserve, basically. So um, now God, of course, reserves the right to, to enthrone or, or dethrone anyone who he, see fit, who he sees fit, whenever, wherever, however. That is the prerogative of the king. Remember, we're the vice regents. We don't own this place. He does. We're governing on his behalf or supposed to be governing on his behalf. And when we govern according to the precepts of the kingdom of heaven, we create abundance and happiness, right? But when we, when we govern poorly in conflict, in contradiction to the kingdom of heaven, we create grief and strife and we create famine and war and all the terrible things that 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 come of bad human governance so the principle is very simple now people will say now what about psalm 82 and weren't they weren't the nations governed by you know uh the sons of god the angelic sons of god i just have a simple question for anyone who who, who poses that show me in any, any, anywhere in history where anything other than a human being governed a nation directly. Now, influence is a no, whole other thing. We can be used as pro proxies for the powers of darkness if we give them influence and we abdicate our authority. And I talk about that in my book. So, yes, in that, in that sense, absolutely. The devil can, can, can control... Um, and manipulate human beings like like puppets certainly and in that and in that regard he governs through via proxy he governs by proxy not directly but through us right am i making sense yeah so that's getting off track a little bit so at at the end of the age which i think is one to two hundred years away for for several reasons which we won't have to go into at the end of this age the age of pisces at the end of the age the earth is going to be almost bereft of human beings. There's almost going to be no human beings left on planet Earth. Not because we're dead, but because we've evolved into a post-human condition.
And so if the birthright of Adam is inherited through the genome, what happens when we e consciously evolve ourselves out of Adam? We forfeit the birthright associated with being made in the image of God, with being, which is inherited through our genome. We forfeit the birthright. But not only do we forfeit it, what happens if we are transitioning out of Adam and somebody else is transitioning into Adam? In other words, they're becoming hybridized and becoming human enough to appropriate the birthright of Adam and take dominion of the earth legally. That's another question. And that will happen at the end of the age. So we are headed for a post-human paradigm, a post-human apocalypse on planet Earth. All right. Now to your question or to your reference. In the book of Revelation, John sees all these terrible things unfolding on the Earth. He sees the kingdom, the empire of the beast rising. We're heading towards Armageddon. And in the midst of this, John is in heaven in this visionary experience, and he sees this scene. And in, in, in the scene, he sees the father sitting on a throne, and, and there's a scroll in his right hand. And there's an, a mighty angel who proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals? So you can imagine this angel declaring over and over, who is worthy to take this scroll and break its seals? And John is standing there waiting for somebody to take this scroll and break its seals, somebody that's worthy. But we read that no one was found worthy in heaven or on earth to take the scroll and break its seals. And so something very interesting happens. John begins to weep bitterly. And as I always say, that's, that always caught me off guard uh, reading that. Why is he weeping over this scroll? I'm not weeping over this scroll. You're not weeping over this scroll. When we read it, nobody weeps over the scroll, right? What does John know about this scroll that we don't? To us, it's just a scroll, it's like a scroll with seals. Who can take this and open it? I don't know. Somebody, I guess. No, John, he knows something about this scroll, and he is weeping bitterly over it. Why? Because of what's unfolding on the earth. Because the dominion of mankind at the end of the age is lost and usurped, hijacked by somebody else. And the earth is under the governance of, of the Antichrist and his kings, of the beast and his kings, who I believe are going to be hybrids. Human, angel hybrids, just like Genesis 6, in the, in the manner of Genesis 6. And human enough to appropriate the birthright of Adam, but they're also the offspring of the dragon and his angels, in my estimation. And so John sees this apocalyptic scene unfolding, and it has to do with this scroll. And he's weeping bitterly because dominion of the earth has been lost. Mankind has lost his birthright, and nobody can restore the earth for the offspring of Adam. It's lost. But the angel in the vision tells John, John, do not weep. And he says, 
and I'm paraphrasing because I always get it wrong. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and he is able to take the scroll and break its seals. And John looked up, and he saw at the right hand of the Father a lamb as if it had been slain. And that lamb, i.e. Jesus, takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father because he is worthy to take the scroll. Why is he worthy to take the scroll? Why is he worthy to open its seals? Because he is a son of Adam. He is the root and the offspring of Jesse. In other words, he is the he pre-existed mankind, but then he became a man and was descended through the royal line through David, which goes all the way back to Adam, by the way. So Jesus is legally worthy. He has the right to take that scroll because he is a man. Now, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Why did he say that? Because in heaven, he's the son of God, the preeminent son of God, the king of heaven. He has all authority from his father. And on earth, he is the son of man. And he has all authority to rule and govern the earth as a son of Adam. And so he is able to take this scroll and break its seals. And he does. And every time he breaks a seal, it's calamity on the empire of the beast. It's judgment. Judgment. And this culminates, of course, the story in Revelation culminates at Armageddon. And as I always tell people, Armageddon is not a conflict between Israel and its neighbors. Armageddon is a conflict against the beast and his empire and the king of heaven returning to, to take possession of the earth for mankind because he is a man, to restore the order of Adam on earth. That's why he rules and reigns, and we reign with him. So, so this, is an, this, is, this is an epic story that's unfolding, and we are in the midst of it because we are headed for a post-human future, and that's probably a topic for another day. But we are headed for a post-human future. We are even now being beguiled into relinquishing the birthright of Adam and becoming something other than the offspring of Adam, post-human. And that is the scenario that's going to unfold. I liken it to Jacob and Esau. We are going to sell our birthright for a bowl of stew. And when we do, all hell literally breaks out. Why? Because we as the vice regents of the earth, very quickly, and we can end on this, we as, the, we as the vice regents of the earth, our domain is protected by the kingdom of heaven. If it were not so, we would have lost it a long time ago. But if a king wants to send a vice regent, a vice regent is someone who rules in the name of the king with the authority of the king. If the king wants to send a vice regent to a distant part of his territory, of his kingdom, he has to give, number one, he has to give that regent a token of his authority, a seal. That's another conversation that has to do with the image of God. He has to give this vice regent a seal 
a token of his authority, of the king's authority, so that when this regent reaches this faraway province of the kingdom, the people there recognize that he has come in the name of the king and he has the authority of the king. But what's the other thing that that means? It means that should they cross him, should they cross this vice regent, the armies of the kingdom, the armies of the king are coming to enforce his authority. So in regards to the human species, our authority on planet Earth, given to us by God, is in force by the kingdom of heaven. These beings who wield technology and armaments of war enforce our authority on planet Earth. So as a final question, what happens then if we lose the birthright, if we lose our authority, that token of authentication. What happens? Take the mark of the beast. Our enemies take over. That's what happens. They, su they supplant us. They usurp our authority. And the armies of heaven do not come to our rescue. Why? They do not. Let's, let's put it. Let's, they do at the end at Armageddon. So let's back up. Let me rephrase that. And the armies of heaven do not restrain, in that scenario, will not restrain the kingdom of darkness from taking over. Why? Because we've lost our birthright. Remember when Paul talks about the restrainer? Paul talks about the, the he who restrains evil at some point in the future is going to back off. And I believe that that is a direct reference to Michael and the armies of heaven. They literally enforce our authority on the earth. You screw with us, you screw with them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I would maybe end with this note. Not all of these advanced aerospace vehicles flying around in our atmosphere that are not ours belong to our enemies. Not all of them belong to our enemies. I would say some of them, at least some of them, belong to our allies, our extraterrestrial older siblings who are enforcing our authority on the earth. Well, wow. I, I don't know if you uh, remember back to the beginning of this when you said I set the bar really high, but you, uh, <laughs> you, you just jumped over it pretty, pretty at least, far. At least three foot over. <laughs> at least three foot over. Well, I was very, very tired at the beginning, and I'm drinking this mushroom coffee concoction that my wife made me, and I guess it has gradually <laughs> begun to rev up my brain as we've been talking. So, Thank you, Jasmine. Well, <laughs> well Tim, while we got you, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can uh, find your book, where they can find um, you? Uh, social media, Timothy Albrino. My book is on... Uh, Amazon. It's on walmart.com, not at Walmart, but on their website. It's on Barnes and Noble, not at the store, but on their website. Um, so you can get it any, any of those, uh, through any of those online vendors. Um, I have a YouTube channel, just my name, Timothy Albrino. And again, on social media, it's just Timothy Albrino is my handle on social media. There's no space or dot or underscore between Timothy and Albrino. 
And if you find one, it's an imposter. And I found several. So mine is just Timothy Elberino, no space dots or underscores. On social media, on YouTube, it's Timothy Space Elberino. All right, Tim. And uh, we really appreciate it, man. This has just been a mind-blowing conversation. And I, I, I pray this is the first of many. I really enjoyed this. I was already excited, looking so. forward to it. But you totally went above and beyond. It's like when you go to some, you know, like Disneyland. It's so great in your mind. When you go, you're let down. We were definitely not let down today, so thank you. Not at all. <laughs> thank you very much. So you're saying it was better than Disneyland? You are oh. better than Disneyland, brother. <laughs> 110 percent i mean these yeah. winds kind of went downhill but listen but no 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 no, no. <laughs> don't devalue this right now yeah it really does mean a lot that you took the time well thank you guys uh it's always uh fun to to, to talk to people who have expanded paradigms and you guys clearly do so thank you yes, my thank pleasure you. appreciate it. well you have a good night my friend and uh hopefully we'll be in touch soon all right guys have a good evening. Yeah, you you too. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at the dig 423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at the Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You gotta dig.